Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we rest in these truths that we have sung, that you will hold us fast. As we come to your word, we know that if your spirit does not come and speak to us now, that this time will be for naught. And so we pray that you would, you would speak to us in power and grace and show us the way to follow you today again. In Jesus' name, amen. Did anyone see the movie Smallfoot last summer? It came out? I actually didn't because I read a review that convinced me I wouldn't enjoy it. As it was a not-so-subtle critique of faith and religion as a whole. Anyway, it tells the story of a group of isolated yetis, a.k.a. Bigfoot in the Himalayas, who discover for the first time that humans, a.k.a. Smallfoot, really do exist. The problem is, their group's religion is based on a set of laws which says that Smallfoot does not exist. So, the discovery of one rocks their world, their status quo, chaos ensues. Now, tellingly, these rules or these laws are written on stones. Yielded or wielded by a very Moses-like character. Meanwhile, the Yetis are told to never question the stones, and they're rebuked if they do so. As you guess, the, the story is about just tearing down the old ideas and then questioning everything. That's the point of it. Brett McCracken says in his review that the stonekeeper, that's the guy who has the rules, the stonekeeper's anti-intellectual black and white approach, suppress all questioning and just believe the stones, is such a bad and vulnerable expression of faith and one the film is right to critique. But the film's stereotyping of religion as basically a man-made sham is problematic. I think the, the film does reveal the general perspective on faith these, these, these days, though. Because faith, indeed, is seen as anti-intellectual, as outdated, it's constricting. Faith is all about, like, it's all about fear and control, dismissing knowledge, preserving power. But this prompts some really helpful questions for us to think through as well. Is our faith all about people trying to gain or maintain power? And do we seek to control people with fear or manipulation? Are we afraid of questions because we're not confident in the truth? Do we believe just because we're told that we should believe? If we answer yes to any of those questions, we actually do have a legitimate problem. But what is our faith based on? What is its root? What is it about? Why believe? Why follow God? What, what should we actually be about? Is our faith based on something deeper than power or control or fear? Are there actually really good reasons to believe and follow the Lord? I think today's passage in Deuteronomy, which is God's word spoken through the real Moses, can give us a much more stable leg to stand on than the stereotypes would allow. 
It tells God's people what their faith is based on, what underlies and what it should lead to, and what we should do about it. And it puts a, a very, it paints a very different picture than what our world assumes or believes about faith. Let's turn together, if you haven't already, to Deuteronomy chapter 11. Deuteronomy 11. Chapter 11 here is the final part of Moses' climax to the introduction of the law. So, but before he's gotten into specific laws, he's recapped a lot of Israel's recent history. He's reminded them what's come before, which has brought them to the doorstep of Canaan, the promised land. Our chapter today is, is kind of like a, a summary of the last six chapters. It's, it's fairly repetitive. And I, I've worried that you might all be getting tired of the repetitive themes. But then I remembered the repetition is kind of the point. There, there's a reason that Moses kept harping on the same things over and over and over again. His message was that vital. And people needed to know it inside and out. Chapter 10 ended with him telling them, you know, God is your God and, and God should be your praise because he has done great things for you. We saw this. He said, he is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. I bring those verses back up because chapter 11 begins with a therefore. You shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his rules, and his commandments always. Now this verse alone really already hints at the, the whole point of the religion of God's people. The obeying the stones wasn't the end goal. Loving the God behind them was. And obedience would be one of the main ways that they could express that love to God. You shall therefore love the Lord your God, and keep his charge, his statutes, his rules, and his commandments always. And so often, obedience is corrupted into cold legalism, just keeping the rules for their own sake. And love so often gets corrupted into just emotional mushiness, devoid of action. But obedience and love together that's something truly meaningful. Balancing attitude and action, emotion and exertion, heart, soul, and strength. You could say that really throughout Scripture, if, if you summarize the way that believers are told to live, it's really to live in obedient love for God. After all, you cannot truly have one without the other. But, as we'll see, we don't do so, we don't, live obedient, in obedient love in order to grab power for ourselves. That's not the goal. We do it because God has shown his power. And, and God didn't just demonstrate brute strength and power. He also demonstrated his love and grace. And so our response of faith is not based on, on just traditions or rules that people have passed down from other people. It's, it's based on the loving power that the Almighty God has demonstrated. The world may think that, that we believe just because we're told we should believe. It's not true. 
We love and follow God because of the tangible, historical way that he has loved us. See, obedient love flows out of God's past works. That's the first point we're going to see here. Our obedient love should flow naturally out as a response to God's great works in the past. He's like, the Lord has done great things for you. You shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep his charge. And Moses continues along the same vein over the next several verses. It's almost like he asks the question, why should we love God? Here's why. Verse 2, and consider today, since I'm not speaking to your children who have not known or seen it, consider the discipline of the Lord your God, his greatness, his mighty hand, and his outstretched arm, his signs, and his deeds that he did in Egypt to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and to all his land, and what he did to the army of Egypt, to their horses and to their chariots, how he made the water of the Red Sea flow over them as they pursued after you, and how the Lord has destroyed them to this day, and what he did to you in the wilderness until you came to this place, and what he did to Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, son of Reuben, how the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households, their tents, and every living thing that followed them in the midst of all Israel. For your eyes have seen all the great work of the Lord that he did. In verse 2, back where it says, to consider the discipline of the Lord. That word discipline can also be translated as instruction. It carries the idea of training. And so it's like Israel over the last several decades was going, undergoing an intense education. And so when they crossed the sea on dry ground, like they're in kindergarten. And then as they saw the, the might of Egypt dis- decimated by Almighty God, like, that was at least worth a grade one education. And then they, they must have blazed through a few levels of school at Sinai. And then in the wilderness, it was like one lesson after another. And they, it was like their rebellious teenage years. <laughs> High school education. Now they're approaching their graduation and going into the promised land. And Moses is like, remember all that. Recall all that God has done for you and what he's taught you, the lessons he's taught you along the way. You've seen amazing things. However, your, your kids haven't seen all these things. And they haven't received the, the same education. As he said in verse 2, Consider today, since I am not speaking to your children who have not known or seen it. Now, we know that the previous generations all passed away in the desert, but that included all the people who were 20 years old or older at the time of the rebellion. So really, everyone younger than that lived on. They're, most of them are still alive today. So many of the people here could have been children or teenagers at the time when they were leaving Egypt. They saw all this. There was plenty of eyewitnesses. And as the years went by, they, they kept seeing more great things, great works of God. In verse 5, And what he did to you in the wilderness all the way until you came to this place. There's no question. Moses is, is focusing on what God has done. What God had done for them in the past. He reminds them of, of what they've experienced 
Consider the discipline of the Lord your God, his greatness, his mighty hand, his outstretched arm, his signs, his deeds that he did in Egypt, what he did to the army of Egypt, what he did to you in the wilderness, what he did to Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab. In verse 7, for your eyes have seen all the great work of the Lord that he did. Moses gives two main historical examples here. One positive, one negative. Positive one is, of course, the exodus from Egypt. God had performed ten miraculous signs and deeds against Egypt, usually known as the ten plagues. And then God defeated their entire army using the sea as his weapon of choice. The negative example is what God did to Israel themselves in the wilderness. Most specifically, the story of Dathan and Abiram, which is recorded in Numbers 16. It said here in verse 6, What he did to Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, how the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households, their tents, and every living thing that followed them in the midst of all Israel. Now that sounds rather horrific. And it was. In this story, a group of men not only just grumbled against Moses' leadership and against God, they actually attempted to lead a coup against him, jeopardizing all of God's plans for his people. And they were denounced by the Lord as wicked, and God judged them in this terrifying way. But just think of how dramatic and unforgettable this scene would have been for people to remember. And if you think this was too harsh... And again, we underestimate the gravity of sin. How God sees it. It showed, though, how fearful it is to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, we might not be quick to call the earth eating people for breakfast a great work of God, as verse 7 says. But it was. If you read the story, it it vividly demonstrated God's holiness, his justice, his power, along with his purity and his authority, his hatred of sin, as well as his mercy on everyone else. He ends up sparing millions. But recalling these past acts of God, was Moses clearly intends to inspire obedient love in God's people. Chris Wright says this, says the purpose is to impress on this generation of Israelites that it is their responsibility to obey Yahweh here and now, neither relying on the obedience of previous generations nor passing off the responsibility to the next generation. Each generation has a continuity and a solidarity with previous generations in covenantal obligation, but at the same time, each generation must must make its own response and take the consequences. Have you ever considered that fact in your own life? No matter who you are, you are part of a line of people in history. There's plenty of people, your parents, grandparents, and others who have come before you, and as God wills, many of us will have people who come after us as well. But you cannot rely on the obedience of your parents to get by with God. It's not going to work. Neither are you forever cursed by their disobedience. You also can't just pass the responsibility off to the next generation. Hope and pray and expect 
that your kids will do better than you did. You have a responsibility. We must personally respond to God in our own generation. God has done great things for them. He'll do great things again. But God has done great things for us. Consider what you've seen the Lord do even in just your lifetime. Have you seen the gospel transform people's lives? Transform their hearts? Your own heart? Have you seen any answers to prayer? Have you seen evidences of God's goodness and grace in your life? What have you seen, or perhaps, what have you heard of God doing even without seeing? What do you believe? Did you believe the, the historically credible accounts of what Jesus has done? Fully dying, and then powerfully rising from the dead. And God has done countless great works throughout history that demonstrate his greatness. Now, if he hasn't, then there is no reason to ever follow him or what he says. But if he has, a holy and awesome God like that should be obeyed. And if he's done things like this on your behalf, a God like that should be loved. In verse 8, Moses moves from recollection to exhortation. He shifts from the past to the future. He's like, you saw all this, so no excuses now. Verse 8 says, You shall therefore keep the whole commandment that I command you today, that you may be strong and go in and take possession of the land that you are going over to possess, and that you may live long in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give to them and to their offspring a land flowing with milk and honey. In these verses and the paragraphs to follow, Moses makes a simple but crucial point. See, so obedient... Love flows out of God's past works. That's where it starts. But where does it go? Obedient love flows into God's future blessing. Obedient love flows into God's abundant future blessing. The, the promised land takes center stage for the rest of this passage. But for us, as, as people who are decidedly not living in a promised land, this can be confusing for us. And what, what's the big deal about the promised land? Well, there are multiple levels to the land's significance, just to name a few. It was a long-awaited homeland for a nation of, of nomads and slaves. It was a, a land to be set aside for the worship of the Lord. It's a holy land. It was to be. It was a clear proof of God's faithfulness to His promises. It was a. It was a gift of His grace, and it gave a, a physical backbone, so to speak, to God's covenant with Israel. Daniel Block says Yahweh's design was for Himself, the Israelites, and the land to exist in a harmonious, symbiotic relationship to one another, each contributing to the other's delight, and each finding delight in the other. 
Here God says that if they obeyed, it would lead to these special blessings in the land. You shall therefore keep the whole commandment that I command you today, that you may be strong and go in and take possession of the land that you are going over to possess, and that you may live long in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give them and to their offspring a land flowing with milk and honey. I like the contrast Moses then draws between Egypt and Canaan. Look in, in verse 10. It's almost like he draws a, a theology lesson out of geography and meteorology. It says, For the land that you are, sent, you are entering to take possession of is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come, where you sowed your seed and irrigated it like a garden of vegetables. Now, most of you have probably at one time or another planted a garden. Even if it was just one of those beans-in-a-cup school projects, right? And believe it or not, you're going to get a chance to plant soon again. The snow will melt, I promise. <laughs> but in Egypt, living along the Nile River Basin had its benefits. The land might have had scarce rainfall, but the river was always there. And so to water your vegetables, you just had to dig good irrigation systems. Canaan, though, would be a different story. It says in verse 11, But the land that you are going over to possess is a land of hills and valleys which drinks water by the rain from heaven. That's quite the imagery. It's like a land guzzling water from the sky. So in the promised land, they'd be much more dependent on the weather. And therefore, they would be much more noticeably dependent on God to provide the weather. Verse 12, This is a land that the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are always upon it from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. It's not that, that God didn't care for Egypt or look after Egypt too, but his care for Canaan was special. And Israel was moving into this land that he tended like a good gardener. Block comments that the land is good not only because it represents the fulfillment of the promises to the ancestors, but also because it drives its inhabitants to depend on God. To the eyes of faith, this is paradise indeed. I wonder what it would take for us independent people to realize that depending on God is a good thing. tend to not see it as a good thing. But dependence on God is a good thing. And given all this, obedient love was that much more crucial. God would always be watching, right? So rebellion would jeopardize livelihoods. Following would mean blessing after blessing. Moses keeps piling on the promises. He says, verse 13, And if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, he will give the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the later rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil, and he will give grass in your fields for your livestock, and you shall eat and be full. So their plants, their animals, and they themselves will all have plenty to eat and drink. Notice the command he gives there in verse 13 is actually itself to love the Lord, which plays itself out in both service and worship. I know this as the opposite of loving him is to fall into idolatry. Look at verse 16. 
Take care, lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens, so that there will be no rain, and the the land will yield no fruit, and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. We've talked before about how the prosperity of the promised land will be a test for Israel. And would they continue to worship God even if all their needs are provided for? Verse 13 to 15 describe the, what a passing grade would be. It's like, if you will indeed obey my commandments that I commanded you to love the Lord, to serve him, all this would happen. Verse 16 to 17 describes a failing grade. Take care lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside to, and, to other gods and serve them and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and it will shut up the heavens so there will be no rain. It's like God would turn off the taps of the sky. He could do that. And therefore it was vital that the Israelites watched out for deception. If they weren't careful, they could be tricked into believing that Baal or another god was in control of these natural elements and they were the ones that provided for them. And if we're not careful, we can so easily be deceived as well. We can be deceived into thinking that that God isn't very active in our world anymore. And so really we've got to look out for ourselves and take care of ourselves. And then our prayer lives dry up. We stop looking for God to work. We can be deceived into thinking that that, uh, the God-named mammon provides for us. So we wrap our lives up in the pursuit of money and wealth. When we, and when our service to God suffers because our service to money, watch out. We can be deceived into thinking that sin is beautiful. That holiness is unattractive. Right? How many times are, are we tempted to sin and we really want to give in and enjoy it, but then afterwards we feel no pleasure and only just terrible regret? All the time, right? As the saying goes, sin hides the price tag. Or as Matt Smethers puts it, sin always looks better through the windshield than the rearview mirror. Take care lest you be deceived. Some of us may think that that spending time loving God and serving God could be spent better. That school or work or sports or something else secures a better future. So we prioritize other things in our lives, or maybe in our kids' lives, for them. When this passage is quite clear, serving God secures the best future. But we say, these blessings promised to Israel aren't promised to Christians. True enough. Right? The, the correlation between obedience and blessing is not guaranteed for us in the here and now. But I say, the blessings promised to believers are even better than these. 
And they're promised to us. They don't just prosper a land. They prosper the kingdom of God. They don't just fill the belly. They fill the soul. They don't just secure prosperity. They secure eternity. And our blessings are also now far more secure because they're promised and guaranteed by Christ. As we sang, He'll not let our souls be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by Him at such a cost. He'll hold us fast. What an unspeakable blessing. And what's interesting now is all this is secured by Christ's obedience, not our own. Therefore, we shouldn't just need to commit our lives to him, but we should want to. And to that end, our lives should be fixated on and and permeated by what he says. Look at verse 18. It says, You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Laying up his words there is a picture of, of storing or even hiding treasure. You might picture something really valuable being put in a safe. Psalm 119.11 says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So God's words are supposed to be so treasured by us that we hide them in our hearts. Not so that we hide them away and they're not being used, but so that we protect them, we ensure we never lose them. In other words, get God's word inside of you. It's got to go in us. Hear us. Hear it. Read it. Digest it. Memorize it. Meditate it. Do whatever you need to to get it inside of you. His word is what can protect us from being deceived and falling into sin. Look, in verse 17, he talked about all this danger of idolatry. Verse 18, you shall therefore lay up these words in your heart. Our commitment to God also, it's clear, should be displayed on the outside of us. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. It should be obvious about us. Now, we heard that exact command in chapter 6, which Moses quotes more of now. It says, You shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you are sitting in your house, and when you are walking by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. It's all echoing the greatest command in chapter 6. But if people didn't make intentional effort to train up the next generation in God's God's ways, they'd be that much more prone to go astray. And that goes for everyone. Everyone can have this responsibility. But but as we talked about back in chapter 6, parents need to take special note of these instructions. Using... Whatever means you have, fill your days with God and His Word. Seize whatever moments or opportunities you have throughout the day as you drive, as you walk, as you eat, as you play, as you prepare for bed. Talk about God. Pray with your family members. Sing. Read Scripture. Read Scripture. 
Setting time aside is great, but we also just got to seize whatever moments God gives us. And kids, as, as your parents would seek to put this into practice, go along with it. Right? You, have a, you have the ability to make this either a joy or a burden. But the responsibility lies on the parents to, to pass on our love for God to our children. Our kids setting their hearts on God's way should be reward enough for this. But God promised many other blessings to Israel as well. In verse 21 he says, That your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give them, as long as the heavens are above the earth. For if you will be careful to do all this commandment that I command you to do, loving the Lord your God, walking in all his ways, and holding fast to him, then the Lord will drive out all these nations before you, and you will dispossess nations greater and mightier than you. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours. Your territory shall be from the wilderness to the Lebanon and from the river, the river Euphrates, to the western sea. No one shall be able to stand against you. The Lord your God will lay the fear of you and the dread of you on all the land that you shall tread as he promised you. Wow. If you remember last week in chapter 10, Moses said, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth and all that is in it. So it was all God's to give. Now he's saying he's going to entrust a bunch to them. It's like every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours. Talk about an unprecedented blessing. Undeserved grace. No one shall be able to stand against you. The Lord your God will lay the fear of you and the dread of you on all the land that you shall tread as he promised you. If you read ahead in their history into Joshua, you see that happening time and time again. This would all be theirs, Moses says, if they would be careful to do all this commandment that I command you to do, loving the Lord your God, walking in all his ways, and holding fast to him. The New Testament echoes that command to hold fast to the Lord at least a dozen times. To, to quote just one, Hebrews 10.23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So just from that, I would encourage you today, if you are here and you feel strained spiritually, if you tired, or weary, or weak, may feel like letting go, tighten your grip today. Not because you're necessarily faithful, but because he who promised is faithful. Right? And he's faithful to, to bless his people, to love them. As Moses wraps up his sermon here, he makes a, a passionate appeal for action. So he started by dwelling on the past, and he started looking ahead to the future, but now he ends by bringing it back to the present, and he calls for a decision to be made. It's like he, he stares into your eyes and says, so what are you going to do about it? Because obedient love hinges on our present choices. 
Whether or not we are obeying and loving God depends on what we do today. And you have no control over yesterday or tomorrow. Obedient love hinges on our present choices. Look how Moses lays this out. Verse 26. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way that I am commanding you today to go after other gods that you have not known. You can't get much more black and white than that, right? The message paraphrases that I've brought you today to the crossroads of blessing and curse. Like they're streets that are named blessing and curse. Moses then directs the people to, to carry out a ceremony once they got into the land. Really, a blessing and curse ceremony. It says this in 29. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, you shall set the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. Are they not beyond the Jordan, west of the road, toward the going down of the sun, in the land of the Canaanites, who live in the Arabah, opposite Gilgal, beside the oak of Morah? Basically, they, they were to, to set up to send people up these mountains that were next to each other, where they would yell out the promised blessings and curses to each other. We'll see that more in detail in chapter 27. But it's, it's like Moses wanted them to have unmissable monuments as reminders. Right? Monuments that would always be there. You can't get much bigger than mountains, right? Chris Wright says that these would be a permanent reminder of the ongoing consequences of that present-day choice. And then Wright continues, The constant thrust of this passage is on the importance of choice, the benefits of the right choice, and the disasters that will result from the wrong choice. Ultimately, obedience or disobedience is the only choice. Blessing or curse is the only prospect. See, I'm setting before you today a blessing and a curse. To use another analogy, it's like Moses set a table in front of them for a meal. And he hands two plates to them and says, pick one. As you can see on this dish, I've, I've prepared your favorite meal. It's delicious. On this one, well, this dish is poisoned. But you can have it. You wouldn't think that that would even need to be a choice. <laughs> of course we'll choose blessing. And yet, human history and our own personal history has shown just how frequently we choose the poison's plate. We choose to go down curse road we choose the curse. Every day is made up of a multitude of choices that we make. Many of them have no moral weight. Like what color socks to wear. Doesn't matter. But many others do matter. On a spiritual and moral level. We choose to lay up God's word in our hearts. Or we choose to lay up Netflix in our hearts. We choose to turn off the phone when we're tempted. Or to continue flirting with sin. 
We choose to bite our tongue and rein in our temper or to let loose. We choose to, to go to church or to a small group or we decide we need sleep more. Choose to speak up to God for God to a loved one. We choose to remain silent. How often do we realize that we're choosing between blessing and a curse? Jesus once declared, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. It may sound harsh, but it's reality. There are only two ways to live. Life or death. Salvation or condemnation. Light or darkness. Blessing or curse. When we get up every week and we implore you to follow Christ, it's a most serious issue. I appreciate the way Jeet Fernando says it. Says we are not simply asking people to add Christ into their life because that will be helpful to them. We're telling them that if they do not accept the gospel, they'll perish. It's true. That's what I'm telling you. But I'm also saying that on our own, we will invariably fall short and choose the curse. But the best news is that there is someone who bore your curse for you. Galatians 3.10 says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Just a couple of verses later it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So do you see? Love demands that we love which will lead to blessing. But we fail to obediently love, which leads to curse. But then love bears the curse so that we can be freed from the curse and receive the blessing. And now, by the Holy Spirit, the promised Spirit, we can actually live under God's blessing. Brings us right back to our daily decisions. Are we choosing to walk by the Spirit? We may have eternal blessings guaranteed for us. We're already saved by Christ, but we still need to daily make choices to take hold of God's blessings by choosing to love him and follow him and serve him and hold fast to him. Let's hear Moses say it one more time in this passage, verse 31, for you to cross over the Jordan and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And when you possess it and live in it, you shall be careful 
to do all the command, the statutes and rules that I am setting before you today. So I ask you now, what choices are you making today? Blessing and curses set before you. Listen to Daniel Block's wise words. He says, As was the case for the Israelites, for those who claim to be God's people, every day is a day of decision. Our commitment to Yahweh must not only be renewed at significant junctures in our lives, but daily. The blessings associated with the covenant are not to be taken for granted or viewed as automatic rights. The covenant established by Christ involves a special relationship which demands constant investment of energy and devotion. Our faith, our faith is, is firmly rooted in the past. It's relevant to our present. And it secures our future. And really, at the end of the day, that is why we lovingly obey the Lord. Because our Lord is the same yesterday and today and forever. So, today, if you hear His voice, don't harden your hearts. Soften it. And surrender to Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, by your Spirit, do this work in us today. May we be so astonished by your love for us that we could never do anything but love you in return. For those of us who have been saved, help us enjoy and appreciate and take hold of that salvation daily. Celebrate it. And for those who are not yet, I pray that you would do that work in them now even. They would choose to follow you. You would call them. Enable them to come. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.